Good morning. One more time. Good morning. That's better. Hey, you're the little one saying good morning. Um, I hope you're all staying warm this morning and we're all thinking maybe, maybe, we've only got a couple weeks of this cold stuff left and then maybe spring might be thinking about coming, but that might be optimistic. Uh, If you could stand this morning, we're going to start with a worship song to kick the morning off.
Tim, I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we're glad you're here and you're joining us. If you are new or visiting, just a couple of things for you to know. First, like on the on the table outside in the foyer, there's like a welcome table out there, and if you are new, we'd love you to, for you to stop by there, and we have a, a gift for you. We'll just to tell you a little bit more about the church as well. Also, in front of you, in the seat back in front of you, there's a, a connect card. If you're new, or if there's just anything you want to communicate with, the church, you can write um, anything on that connect card and drop it in the, the offering box at the, at the back of the church on your way out this morning. We'd love to just hear from you and be able to connect with you in whatever way would be most helpful and beneficial um, for you. And so this morning, we're going to uh, celebrate communion together, so hopefully on your way in, you grabbed a uh, little communion cup. If not, they're uh, outside in the foyer. You can sneak out at some point. At the end of the service, we will partake in that together. Also, a part of Communion Sunday, we take a benevolence offering, like a special offering that's focused on meeting the needs in our community of people, um, just in our community that have needs. And so, on your way out this morning, there'll be somebody at the door holding a, an offering plate. That offering will be for the benevolence offering. Regular ties and offering can go in the, the boxes that are mounted to the back wall. We're glad you're here this morning. If you are new, like as a church, at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, we really want to be about three things. We want to be about reaching people with the gospel, growing to be like Christ, and serving others. And one of the ways we reach people with the gospel is through supporting missionaries. So this morning I'm going to invite Josh up, and he's going to give us a little update on one of the missionaries that we support as a, as a church. 
Thanks, Tim. Yep. Um, so today I want to give an update uh, to you uh, from one of our missionaries abroad. Um, this is from the Ellenwood family uh, over in the Czech Republic. Uh, dear TLEFC family, did you know that Philippians is a thank you letter from a missionary to a supporting church? Paul is thanking the Philippians for their ongoing partnership in the gospel. He's convinced their gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. But he's not seeking a gift. He's seeking that their gift will be credited to their account. That is our prayer for you, too, that God would credit your prayers and gifts to your account and supply all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We thank God for you so often. Thank you for standing with us, investing in Central and Eastern Europe for the sake of the gospel. It is such a privilege to serve with you. In Jesus, Melanie Amy Ellenwood. Um, we got this note because I asked for an update uh, from Mel and Amy to see how they are doing and uh, any way that we could pray for them or um, help further support them. Uh, they also included um, some prayer cards that we'll have in the foyer as well as a note about their present need, which I also want to read right now. Um, God has been faithful to provide for the needs of our ministry, but over the past months we've lost significant sources of our financial support. We have learned that in times like these, uh, we can fully trust God to provide. He always has. We have also learned that it is important to ask, to make our need known. Would you pray and ask the Lord if there is anything he would have you do or give? We need to raise $2,000 more per month. We would be so grateful if you would bring our need to him with us. Um, so the church in general here will be considering that as we prepare our um, next fiscal budget. Um, but I'd also invite any of you that are uh, maybe currently helping support the Ellen Woods privately or considering to uh, stop by in the back, take a look at their prayer card. Um, and if you'd like to reach out to me, you certainly can. Otherwise, their contact information is there as well. So thank you. That, like supporting missionaries like the Ellenwoods is one way that we seek to reach people with the gospel if they're over in Central Europe, really intentionally pouring out and sharing the gospel with people. But we also want to be intentional in our own communities right, to, to be engaging with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our friends, and sharing the gospel with them. Like another thing we value the church is growing to be like Christ. And in your bulletin, you'll see there's an opportunity to do that coming up. That is. For women, there is Common Ground um, on Thursday, February 24th. So we invite all of you women to be a part of that and just a chance to grow together as in fellowship and also to grow to be like Christ. As we continue just kind of focusing our minds this morning and worshiping God, would you join me in prayer? Father, we pray for the chance to come together, to gather here, even if it's very cold outside, that you would provide us this place we can gather in relative warmth and comfort to be together as your people gathered here, to take time, focus 
our minds on bringing you glory. We all lead busy, sometimes stressful lives. But you've given us the time this morning to come before you to put all those other cares aside and to fix our minds on you. Would we do that? And as we sing and as we hear your word, would we be captivated by what an incredible God you are? What an amazing Savior Jesus is. That caused us to pour out praise to you and it caused us to desire to live lives that glorify you. You pray for the Ellenwoods and other missionaries throughout the world living in oftentimes hard circumstances, sometimes dangerous circumstances. They seek to make your name known, to lead people to the truth of the gospel, that their sins can be forgiven and they could spend eternal life with you. We pray for them. We pray that you give them boldness. We pray that you would meet financial needs. Give them effective ministry. And pray for each one of us gathered here that you would show us how we, in our own daily lives, can go about reaching people with the gospel. How we can interact with friends and neighbors and co-workers in ways that point them to Jesus. Help us to do that well. You give us boldness in telling others about Jesus. Yeah, Lord, we live lives that above all seek not for our own good, not for our own joy, but ultimately for your glory. Personally, you'll provide everything else we need. Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand again as we continue worshiping.
other songs here. Um, I was thinking this morning as we were kind of practicing with these, how everybody, like everybody frames worship music kind of in the circumstances that they're going through at the time. You know, it's been, since I've been doing this and all the different years I've been doing it, people have come up to me at the end of the service and said, that song really was important to me today. And that song was important to me. And it's always for different reasons. And everybody has something different that's going on in a given day. For me, um, this week's been about like challenging kid situations. We're in, our, Al is my husband and I, we have three kids and they're all teenagers right now. And I remember a few years ago when we first moved here and our kids were little, I was talking to a, a parent who had older children. And I said to her, does it get any easier? Because I'm tired. And she was like, it gets harder. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, it can't get harder. And I think what she really meant and what I understand now is it's harder, but it's fulfillingly hard. Like the things that we're going through with our kids right now are, they are tough and there are hard conversations and this week's been just like full of them and things come at you that you don't know how to deal with and you make tons of mistakes. So for me, I've kind of like framed my worship this morning and how I'm reading these lyrics as like God is father and God is perfect father because I feel like I fail every day. Like every day I'm messing up something with my kids. But as these, you know, these lyrics say, um, we're going to sing Build My Life next. It's worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. We live for you. We live for you. Holy, there is no one like you. There is no one beside you. God is holy and he's perfect father. So I've been really like just kind of dwelling on the personhood of God as I'm reading these lyrics this morning and singing them. So let's just set our intention with that in mind this morning.
Father, it is good news that as we just sang, your plan for us don't end at the grave, that there is hope, joy beyond this life here and now. And believing that it's such a fundamental how we live this life. That truth that there is eternal life beyond this life, would it deeply abide in us and would it form how we live and how we think about all that goes into living this life now. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Do you probably know right, that the, the Super Bowl is tonight? Now, for me, like, I do everything in my power to act like football ceases to exist as soon as the Packers lose. Right? And so like, I try to avoid it. I haven't watched a minute of football since the Packers lost. Right? But there's kind of no avoiding the Super Bowl. It's like just such a part of our, our culture that it's hard to get away from. In fact... Eight out of the top ten most watched broadcasts of all time in the, in the United States are Super Bowls. The only two that aren't Super Bowls are the Apollo 11 moon landing and Nixon's res- resignation speech. And both of those have the advantage of being on multiple networks at the same time that kind of padded their numbers. Right? So that means like the top eight single network show broadcasts of all time are all Super Bowls. Because it's just a ton. Like people watch the Super Bowl, right? Like in 2017, the Falcons played the New England Patriots, and despite being like the 51st Super Bowl ever, incredibly, I was the first one that ever went to overtime. In that overtime period, it's estimated that 172 million Americans watched that overtime. Now there's 340 million Americans in the country, right? Which means, if you do math, like, that's more than half the country was watching that one game in that one moment. Which means, like, that overtime period is the most single-watched, simultaneous event in American TV history. Right? All that to say, like, the Super Bowl is a big deal. Like, in an age of seemingly endless channels and streaming services and entertainment options... It's one of the very few events that can still draw a large percentage of the viewing public into one place at one time. And that fact, right, that it draws all these people simultaneously makes the Super Bowl incredibly valuable to advertisers. And because of that, like, commercials have become almost as big a deal in the Super Bowl as the game itself, right? There's, like, lists after the day after the Super Bowl, like, the best commercials during the Super Bowl, like, like advertising become a huge deal during the Super Bowl. Like, advertisers work really hard to make sure they have a very good ad during the game. And like, it's important they do that because right, Super Bowl ads are extremely expensive. So this year, a 30-second commercial during the game will cost, on average, $6.5 million dollars. For 30 seconds, $6.5 million to get your commercial on TV. 
And in my mind, like, I think there's no way that can pay off. There's no way that can make that kind of money back. There, that, that, that can't work. But every single year, the price has gone up. Which means that apparently it's working. Like, apparently companies find it worthwhile. Like, for comparison's sake, a 30-second commercial during the first Super Bowl cost $37,500. Now, you might be inclined, like, oh, well, that's just inflation's the difference, right? But even adjusted for inflation, like, an ad during Super Bowl I in 2022 money would cost $315,000. Which means even adjusted for inflation, an ad today costs 20 times more than it did during Super Bowl one. And advertisers pay it because it works, right? It's remarkably effective. All told, last year, U.S. companies spent $240 billion on advertising. Amazon, by itself, spent $7 billion just on advertising. Like, you wonder, like, why do they spend that much money? But there's one obvious and simple answer. Because it works. They make their money back. Companies are, have succeeded through advertising in convincing us that happiness and life satisfaction is all wrapped up in the stuff that we have. Like that advertising's one job, and they do it extremely well. But the advertising industry is built around that one goal, right? Convincing you that life is all about how much stuff you have. Or to put it another way, right? The goal of advertisers is to convince you that life consists of an abundance of possessions. The problem is, like, that goal is in direct conflict with what Jesus says in today's passage in Luke chapter 12. And so for us, like as Christians who live in America, like perhaps the most materialistic, consumeristic culture the world has ever known, like we have a decision to make. And choose, like are we going to follow the call of the advertisers in our culture and seek possessions and treasure for ourselves here in this life, or will we store up treasure in heaven? That's the question that confronts us as we come to Luke chapter 12. With that in mind, let's read. We're going to read verses 13 through 34 of Luke chapter 12 this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there, run to the seat in front of you, otherwise the verses will be on the screen as well. Starting in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12, This is what we read. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, 
You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stored up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, or what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothed the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father hath been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purpose for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You're looking at these verses in your Bible. You probably see that they're kind of divided into two trunk, two chunks. Right? So my Bible here, verses 13 through 21 are divided, and like they're given the header, the parable of the rich fool. And then verses 22 through 34 are another section, and they're given the header, do not worry. What's important to recognize is that at the end of both of these sections, we get Jesus saying something very similar. So in verse 21, Jesus says, This is how it will be with whoever stored up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And then in verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, Provide purchase for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so both of these verses ask the reader, ask the listener to consider the same question. And that question is this. Where is your treasure? Is it on earth or is it in heaven? And this matters because, as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be as well. And so where your treasure is is a way to gauge whether your heart is fixated on the things of the world 
or on the things of God. Where your treasure is the way to test where you stand with God. Because it's a reflection of where your heart's at. And so where our treasure is, it's a way for us to test. If we're really living for God, or if we're just paying God lip service, well, we really live for ourselves. So then the important question becomes, like, how can I tell? Like, how can I know where my treasure is? And in the verses we just read, I think we see at least four kind of tests, like four ways we can test ourselves to see like, where our treasure is at. So this morning, I just want to walk through these verses again and like look at each of those four tests. And then based on those tests, I just want to invite you right, to, to self-assess, to ask yourself the question, honestly, in like your own heart, where is my treasure? But before we get into the four tests, like first I want us to notice like what the test is not. I think this is really important, right? So let, notice this, like how much stuff you have or how much wealth you have in and of itself, is not one of the tests. Verses 13 through 21 are about a rich fool who is storing up treasure in the wrong place. He's someone who is wealthy and he's using his wealth for personal gain. And that's probably what we think of, at least what I think of, when I think of someone who's storing up treasure on earth instead of treasure in heaven. Someone who's rich and using it selfishly. But then notice, verses 22 through 34, Jesus is talking to people who are worried about having enough food to eat, like having clothes to wear. These are poor people, right? They don't even know for sure where their next meal is coming from always. Yet, like Jesus says, they are just as capable of storing up treasure on earth as the rich fool is. They're just as capable of being selfish with their few possessions as the rich fool is being selfish with his many possessions. So the question is not how much stuff you have. The question is where your heart is at in terms of how you view your stuff, how you use your stuff. That's the question. Where's my heart and how I use the things that God has given me? With that in mind, let's look at the the four tests that we see in these passages. The first test is to ask yourself this question. Why am I interested in Jesus? Right. Throughout all four Gospels, we see people interested in Jesus for all kinds of wrong reasons. Right? They thought he was a military conqueror. They thought he could do something for them here on this earth. And we see the same thing here. If you were here last week, you look back at the version before this, like you'll notice like Jesus had just finished this big spiel about these big heavenly topics. He just finished talking about like you should not fear the one who can kill the body, how we must acknowledge God before men. And then verses 11 and 12, the verses right before this, this is what Jesus says. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So Jesus is saying these big, important, eternally important things to this whole crowd of people. 
all the way through the end of verse 12. Then we come to verse 13, and what happens? Someone in the crowd says to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The impression I get is like in the middle of this crowd full of people, this one man stands up and he asks Jesus this very personal question that only pertains to him and his brother, and it's about very, about very earthly, temporary things. He just interrupts Jesus' a big spiel about heavenly topics to ask him to arbitrate an inheritance dispute. And like one of my biggest pet peeves is being interrupted. Which is why I do this, right? Because I can stand up here and unless you're super rude, like no one's gonna interrupt me. Right? Like I can just ramble as long as I want and no one's gonna stop me. Right? Right? Being interrupted drives me crazy. Right? Especially when I'm interrupted by someone saying something trivial or unimportant. And so I don't find it surprising that Jesus responds to this man with a pretty sharp retort. He says in verse 14, like, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, in this culture, rabbis, which Jesus was, were often, often were called upon, called upon to settle disputes like this. But Jesus here is saying, like, I'm not that kind of rabbi. I'm not here to arbitrate disputes over inheritances. My concerns are far bigger. I'm concerned with the kingdom of God and not earthly matters. But this man, he was only interested in Jesus for what he could offer him in this life. He was only interested in how Jesus could help him with worldly matters in the here and now. He was interested in Jesus for the wrong reasons. And we can be prone to do the same thing. Maybe not in exactly the same way, but many people are interested in Jesus, even now, for the wrong reasons. Again, the question to ask ourselves is, like, why are you interested in Jesus? Why? Why do you follow Jesus? Like, why do you show up at church on Sunday? Is it because you think Jesus will provide you some extra help with earthly matters? Do you follow Jesus because you hope he'll help you get a better job or he'll help strengthen your marriage or he'll help your parenting? If you follow Jesus because you think he'll help you like, stay healthy or get better when you're sick? Are you interested in Jesus because of what he can do for you here and now in this life? Or are you interested in Jesus because he is the sinless Son of God who came to earth not primarily to give you all kinds of good things in this life, right? but to make it possible for you to spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth? So might you just like, take a second and ask yourself that question honestly, like, in your own heart and mind. What do I hope I get out of following Jesus? Am I hoping for something in this life? Some blessing from Him here and now? Or am I following Jesus because He offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life? That's the first test of where our treasure is. If you're interested in Jesus because of something He can offer you here and now in this life, 
That's a pretty good bet. Your treasure is on earth. If you're interested in Jesus because He offered you forgiveness of sins and eternal life, that's an important step in towards storing up treasure in heaven. That's the first test. Why are you interested in Jesus? The second test, we see in verse 15 through 18. In response to the man asking him to arbitrate the dispute over his inheritance, Jesus replies, as he often does, by telling a story. He says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Like, I can't read verse 18, like, tearing down barns and building bigger ones without thinking about, like, all the, like, self-storage places that pop up, like, all along, like, every road. Like, there are more self-storage places around here than, like, any other kind of business. It's shocking how, and, like, apparently they keep putting them up, so apparently they're finding uses. But just, just look at this man's response again. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. Did you you notice how self-centered that response is? This man is experiencing something that's kind of a rarity in the ancient world, which is an overabundant harvest. As we'll see in the next section, there are people all around him worrying about what they're going to eat from day to day. And yet this man, when presented with the problem of what am I going to do with all these extra, all this extra food, like, doesn't think about, oh, maybe I should give it to people in need. Like, all he does is think about how he can utilize that abundance of harvest for his own pleasure. There's no indication that he gives any thought to using his abundance to bless others or to honor God. And the fundamental underlying reason that this man is only concerned about using his abundance for his benefit is that he believes that the grain and the barn are his. Like eight times in these couple of sentences, the man says either I or my. And it's the uses of my that stand out here. Like, do you see these? Like, like, I have no place to store my crops. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus grain. I compare that attitude with what we read in verses like Job 41.11 where God says, Who has any claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Or Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Or Psalm 50, verses 9-12. God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. 
If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. That abundance of grain, those barns, they don't belong ultimately, first and foremost, to the man in this parable. They belong first and foremost to God. And God graciously gives them to that man to be used for God's good purposes. But the man doesn't see it that way. He sees them as his. And the same thing is true for everything that we have. All our stuff. The same thing is true. It ultimately belongs first and foremost to God. So the question to ask ourselves, the next test of where our treasure is, is this. Who owns the stuff you use? On a fundamental level, who do you believe to be the owner of everything you have? You or God? As long as you see all the money and all the stuff that you have, first and foremost as yours, you will use your wealth and your possessions for selfish purposes. But if you understand that the money and the stuff that you have first and foremost and fundamentally belong to God, then you will use your wealth and your possessions for His purposes, to bring Him glory. And notice again, like, this is not a rich or poor issue. The poor man can hold just as selfishly and tightly and greedily onto his few possessions as the rich man does to his many possessions. The issue is not how much stuff you have. The issue is, who do you believe to be the base level, ultimate owner of that stuff? And then how is that reflected in how you use the things you do have? So I just invite you to think about, reflect on how you use your money, and how you use your possessions. Like, just think, like, does the way I spend my money, does the way I use my possessions, does it reflect that I truly believe that everything I own belongs first and foremost to God? Someone looked at your bank account, your purchase history. Would it be obvious to them you are a Christian. You have a deep desire to bring God glory. Or do you view your money and your possessions as yours, that you earned, and so you can use them for your own good pleasure as you see fit? And if you ask yourself that honestly, and after honest assessment you say, you know what? I do use my money selfishly. I do use my stuff for my own selfish enjoyment. I do view my things as mine. If that's kind of the conclusion you come to after honest assessment, then I would suggest that maybe you're storing up treasure on earth and not in heaven. And when you view the things you have as mine, your own, as you 
view your possessions selfishly. It often leads you to ex- expect your possessions to do something for you that they were never designed to do. When you view your possessions so selfishly, you often expect them to give you a level of comfort and satisfaction and joy that possessions were never meant to give. When our treasure is on earth, then we will expect our earthly treasure to bring us comfort and satisfaction and joy on this earth. And so another test that we see in the passage of whether your treasure is on earth or in heaven, is to ask yourself this question. Where do you find comfort and satisfaction? Look at verses 19 through 21 again. After the rich man decides to build these bigger new barn for himself, he says this, And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid out for many years. Now, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And you see the assumption there. If I can just get enough stuff, if I can just save enough money so I know I'm set financially, right, then life will be good. Then I can take life easy. Then I can eat, and I can drink, and I will be merry. Once I've accumulated enough stuff, I'll be able to find my comfort and my satisfaction in that stuff. My, my stuff, my possessions are the key to me living and having a happy life. And that view, that fulfillment of found in possessions, that's like so pervasive in our world. As we said at the beginning, right? Like, that's why there's a $240 billion advertising industry. If people believe that lie, that enjoyment and satisfaction and comfort is found in material possessions. It's so easy to think of. If my house was just a little bit bigger, if my car was just a little bit newer, if my clothes were just a little bit nicer, if I just had that one new piece of technology, then life would be great. Then I would be so much happier. But what is God's response to that mindset? In verse 20, he says, you fool. Having that mindset is foolish. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. The accumulation of all kinds of stuff and possessions will be no source of comfort when your time on this earth is at an end. And no one knows when their time on this earth will be up. For any one of us here, it could be this very day or this very night that what for this man in this parable. Then the question becomes, what happens next? What happens after this life ends? If this life is all there is, and then after death, it's just nothingness, then by all means, yeah, it makes sense to find joy and satisfaction in the things of this world. Paul even says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If this world is all there is, then yeah, 
find whatever joy you can here while you can. But if, as the Bible teaches us, there is an eternity waiting for each of us beyond this life, then it makes no sense to find comfort and satisfaction in possessions of this world that you cannot take with you. And instead, to find comfort and joy and satisfaction in knowing that if you've trusted in Jesus, then you have an eternity in the glory to the new heaven and the new earth to look forward to. So again, the question is, where do you find your comfort and your satisfaction? Is it in the possessions you have accumulated in this life? Do you look for the purchase of new things to bring you joy? Or do you find comfort and satisfaction in knowing that eternal glory awaits you if you are a follower of Jesus? That's the third question to ask. In the fourth test, see in verses 22 through 34. I'm not going to reread all of those verses, but verse 22 kind of sums up the main idea very well. In verse 22, Jesus says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. And so the test here is the question, what causes you to worry? Do you worry about life? Do you worry about food and clothes and material possessions? Jesus says in this passage that God feeds the raven and he clothes the flowers of the field and people are far more valuable than ravens and flowers. And so to worry about any of those things shows a lack of trust in God. Furthermore, Jesus points out that even by worry, no one can add a single hour to their life through worry. In fact, the the opposite is true. According to a, a study out of Finland, living a life of heavy stress and worry can shorten your life expectancy by 2.8 years. That's more of an effect on life expectancy than living an entirely sedentary lifestyle. Like, stress and worry will kill you. Worrying about your life doesn't do anyone any good. You can't do anything about it. But you may wonder, then what is the alternative? Jesus tells us, starting in verse 29, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. And here's the alternative. But, seek first His kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. The alternative to worrying about your life, worrying about food and money and possessions, to seek God's kingdom first. And trust that God will take care of the rest. If you seek the kingdom of God, if you seek God's glory, God will take care of all the other needs. 
That leads to questions about like, can Christians starve? And like, those are hard questions, and we have to talk about them in cross training after the service up here. But just say this: right? God meets the needs, whatever needs you have that will most enable you to bring Him glory. You seek God's kingdom; He will take care of all the other needs. And the only thing that should, that should cause us to worry is the prospect of not entering the kingdom of God. But in verse 32, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been, past tense, has been pleased to give you the kingdom. If you've trusted in Jesus, the kingdom of God is yours. You have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. So again, the question is, like, what causes you to worry? Do you worry about the pragmatic concerns of life, right? food and clothing, and how much stuff you have? Or do you trust God with those concerns? Trust that whatever He gives you is sufficient for His purposes for you. If we ask ourselves these four questions, it begins to give us a, an indication of where our treasure is, right? on earth or in heaven. Problem is, if you're anything like me, like some of those questions hit like hammer blows. If I'm being honest with myself, I don't like where those questions reveal my treasure to be oftentimes. Like far, far too often. I think of my stuff first and foremost as my own. And far, far too often I, I look to material possessions to bring me joy and happiness and satisfaction and, and comfort. Reading these verses this week, preparing this, just struck me in a fresh and new light, just how materialistic I can tend to be. I fail often to seek first God's kingdom. I fail frequently to use my money and my possessions to bring God glory first and foremost. And maybe, maybe you hear these verses you feel the same way. Maybe you're painfully aware of your own failures in some of these areas. The good news, and there is good news. Right? If this passage comes in the middle of a book that's leading Jesus going to a cross, and He goes to that cross, Not as just some kind of moral example. But because he knows we've failed. He knows we've sinned in this area and many other areas. He knows we need forgiveness for the way we've used our money, the way we've used our possessions. 
He goes to the cross. Knowing other ways we fail. And on the cross, God looks at Jesus and pours out His wrath on Jesus for all the times we failed. To use our money and our possessions the way we are called to use. Through Jesus' death on the cross, we find forgiveness for all the times we've failed in this area and every other area of life. Now, because of Jesus, because of the forgiveness He offered, we are free not to hide, not to feel shame over how we've used our money, our possessions, but to repent of any areas we need to repent of. Ask God to help us, to change us, to give us a, a better, more godly view of our money and our possession. To help teach us how to store up treasure on heaven, in heaven and not on earth. But we are free from the guilt and the shame of the times we've failed because of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. He's already paid the penalty for all the times I've failed all the times you've failed in this area. It can be so easy to forget what Jesus has done. To forget the forgiveness that's found in Jesus. That's why we take communion. That's why we have things like communion. To serve as tangible, physical reminders. Not just my words that go into the air and are gone. But this tangible, physical thing. The reminder of what Jesus did for us. That His body was really broken on the cross. He suffered and died because of our failure. Because He loved us enough that He wanted to make a way for us to be forgiven even though we didn't deserve it. So just a minute, we're going to take communion together. Before we do that, we're going to listen to one more song to invite us to have a time of reflection. If there are areas where you feel need to repent or to talk with God, use this time to do that. And after the song, I will come back up and we will partake in this meal together.
even when we don't deserve it, when we sin, when we fail, even when we were your enemies, you were good to us in sending Jesus to die on the cross in our place. You are so good. We respond to your goodness desire to live lives that bring you glory. Not to, not to earn your favor. We have to respond to your goodness, your faithfulness to us. Yeah, there is no clearer picture of your goodness, 
of your faithfulness than what you did for us in Jesus. Dying on the cross. His body being broken, his blood being spilled out. So that he would bear your wrath against our sin. We could be forgiven. We prepare now to take communion. You give us just a sense of awe and wonder at your goodness as it's displayed to us in communion. We remember what Jesus did for us. Will we not take this bread and this juice lightly? Let it remind us, we let it stir our heart. Reflect on our sin, your faithfulness to provide mercy and grace to us so that our sin can be forgiven. Grace in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body. Broken for you. To forgive, provide forgiveness for your sins. For all things we talked about today and all the other sins. To provide forgiveness my, my body. Broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake. In the same way, after supper, he, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of. Father, we are so prone to forgetfulness, to taking for granted all that Jesus did for us. We praise you that you in your wisdom provided communion as a way for us to pause, to reflect, and to remember Jesus and all he did. That would we run to him and what he did for us on the cross every time we feel our sin, every time we feel ourselves giving into materialism and storing up treasure on earth, would we run to Jesus for forgiveness and would we repent and turn back to you in so doing, when we store up treasure in heaven, and when we spend whatever concessions, whatever wealth you give us in this life, when we spend it for your glory, to point other people to you, to serve 
other people well, to help other people grow in their knowledge of you. We use things you've given us for your purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you go from here? Would you go recognizing that all you have is a gift from God given to you to be used for His glory? So would you go so doing? You are just. Good.